San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, everybody. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download the app for 760 KFMB or tune in radio, you can hear this show as it airs on any device. And, of course, all these podcasts are commercial-free on iTunes and IYMoney.com. Now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinaire, an accomplished marathon runner, a best-selling author, a lecturer, a philanthropist, and a family office expert advising several high net worth families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? I'm marvelous, Joe. Getting ready for Thanksgiving. You know, the L.A. Times, the Los Angeles Times, named the Oceanside Turkey Trot one of the top six Thanksgiving morning turkey trots in the country. Well, that's fantastic. Let's hope some people from L.A. get down there. Yeah, Buffalo is ranked number one because it started in 1896. Any, wow. any race that's been around for 121 years in freezing weather. Yeah, they got a, they got a little start on you. Yeah. Anyway, uh, as a footnote to last week's marvelous show with uh, re, uh, legal giants Bill Lirak and Judge Lee Sarakin, who freed Hurricane Reuben Carter, uh, he emailed me later in the week after that show. And Which he, that was three names. Pardon me, uh, uh, Judge Lee. Oh, Judge Lee, okay. Uh, emailed me, and um, he told me that uh, Reuben Carter he, uh, phoned him up every year on November 8th, which was the anniversary of the, uh, the date that he freed him in 1985, up until the day before he died. And Reuben Carter called him, and, he's, and he, wa- he said, Judge, I want your voice to be the last one I hear before I, I pass on. And, that, and, he, and the judge said they both cried. So uh, amazing story. Um, and also, uh, we had Bill Lyric on, of course, his signature case was Enron, major scandal. He's, he's recovered $45 billion uh, in all kinds of class action lawsuits for securities fraud over his career. And of course, Enron was a record $7.12 billion uh, against uh, some banks, which was ultimately cut off by the Supreme Court because he had more banks to go. But that's a great lead-in to tonight's show because uh, if you folks have not heard of the LIBOR scandal, or maybe you've heard of it in passing, uh, but you don't know the, the true impact or import, well, we have uh, the New York Times finance editor with us who's written a book called The Spider Network, The Wild Story of a Math Genius, a Gang of Backstabbing Bankers, imagine that, <laughs> and one of the greatest scams in financial history. And I think this has to be the greatest scam in financial history but uh, he is currently the New York Times finance uh, editor. He was with the Wall Street Journal, I believe, when uh, he wrote this book. But David Enrich, welcome to our show, and welcome from New York. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, of course, by the time this airs, uh, you, you are speaking at USD. Uh, you know, as last Tuesday night, this is going to be airing Saturday, of course. And uh, so you're in here before that event, and we really do appreciate it. You've got a 500-page book that was just released in March, and... Uh, <laughs> It's a cross between, uh, I don't know, the gang that couldn't shoot straight and uh, the great train robbery. And, um, boy, it's, 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 really, it's a crime novel, but, uh, but it's all fact. It's all, it's all nonfiction. It's, uh, it's terrific work. How many years do you think this took to put this together for you? Oh, my goodness. It feels like a lifetime. <laughs> uh, three years? Four years? Wow. Uh, and I probably knocked out three or four years off the end of my life yeah. as well, I think. Of course, uh, you were working for the Wall Street Journal and, and covering this, um, but uh, Tom Hayes, obviously, is a central character, the only guy who goes to jail in this whole scam and scandal. I honestly think this LIBOR 
scandal. Probably it was starting in, in, up in the early 90s, um, and we talked before the show, and you seem to agree that they started manipulating that rate as early as then, possibly, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and LIBOR is it's often referred to as the world's most important number because it's something most people have never heard of or given any thought to, but it's something that you know if you've borrowed money or you work for a company or live in a town that's borrowed money, which most of us do, uh, this affects you. And if you yeah. have a mortgage, student loan, an auto loan, a credit card loan, and the interest rate you're paying is often based on LIBOR. Right. And starting 20 years ago, banks realized that this was a number that no one was paying much attention to, but it was enormously lucrative for them. Mm -hmm. And they could just nudge it up or down by tiny little amounts, but those tiny little amounts turned into huge profits. Right, for the because banks. when you have $350 trillion, and I've seen the numbers high as $600 trillion, right, tied to this. So if you've got an adjustable loan, folks, and I guess they want an adjustable loan so you don't get locked into a fixed rate from a, from a banking standpoint, so you, if you can move it up as... Right. As uh, as uh, I guess if there's inflation or anything, uh, so you can continue your profit. But then <laughs> you get side. Ba there's trade. Explain all the cast of characters because you got traders, you've got brokers, you've got bankers, uh, right? It's uh, it, and it is. I mean, you explain it well in your book, but it still it gets complicated. In no, it's part. really complicated. And and one of the things I've tried to do in the book is demystify a lot of the jargon and kind of the arcane nature of the financial system. The banks have done a really good job over the past. 10 or 20 years of cloaking themselves in all this opacity. But when you boil a lot of this stuff down to its essence, it's actually not that complicated. Mm -hmm. So LIBOR is the rate that determines, if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, for example, it's your mortgage will be set based on LIBOR plus a couple of percentage points, right. usually. And LIBOR and, is, and What does LIBOR stand yeah, for? So it's an acronym. It's the London Interbank Offered Rate. Right. And basically every day around lunchtime in London, a group of the world's biggest banks get together and estimate how much it would theoretically cost them to borrow money from each other. And, and name a few of these banks forever. So it's the world's biggest banks. Citibank, yeah. uh, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, UBS, the big Swiss bank, Deutsche Bank, the big German bank. Mm -hmm. It's basically a who's who of the world's biggest Barclays, banks. Barclays, I guess. Yeah, Barclays, <laughs> certainly. Uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. And BN, so, BN, BNP Paribas, right? Also. Yeah, and it's it, the group is, the, the roster of banks involved in this has varied from mm -hmm. time to time over the year, but it's, it's historically been the 15 or 20 biggest banks in the world. And are, these, are these the central banks, would you say? No. no. I mean, these are, no, these are commercial banks. So okay. these are banks that are, it's not like the Federal Reserve All or right. the Bank of England. It's banks that are, you know, privately owned, mm -hmm. uh, profit-making institutions who, mm -hmm. and that's important because the banks had a very powerful incentive to see LIBOR go in particular directions. And that's because, in general, they were holding trillions and trillions of dollars of complex instruments known as derivatives, whose values were based in large part on LIBOR. And so these guys realized that they're the ones setting LIBOR, and they're also the ones who stand to gain or lose a lot of money based on very small fluctuations in mm -hmm. the rate. And because no one was paying attention, this rate was completely unregulated until very recently, they realized that they could just tweak the number a little bit, up or down. No one would really pay much attention. No one would really notice. Mm -hmm. And they stood to make tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in It the could process. be just fractions of a fractions of a point, right? Yeah, the, the, the term of art in the banking industry is a basis point, which right. is one one-hundredth of a percentage point. So these are, and for every basis point that LIBOR moved up or down, bank traders like Tom Hayes, who's the central character here, had stood to gain millions of dollars. Right. And that's because there's so many transactions, billions of transactions? Yeah, it's be, I mean, there are two types of transactions that are tied to this. The first are just kind of normal loans. So a mortgage or if you're a big company and you borrow money, 
uh, your loan, the interest rate in your loan will generally be tied in some way to LIBOR. The second thing and the more important one as far as the banks are concerned are these derivatives, which historically were they were invented as a way for normal businesses and people to protect themselves against swings and in interest rates in the future and things like that. It was a very it was actually a very legitimate goal, but they became as so many other things did in the finance industry in the 90s and 2000s, they became this playground right. for the giant casino casino, of the financial right. industry. So you got side bet, you got the actual profiting from the loan itself and then the side bets betting on if right. it's going to go up or down and of course if you've got people that you can influence to make it do that right. and you know which way to bet, it's basically rigging the game. It's exactly rigging the game. Yeah. And it's it's rigging the game in a way that it's especially noxious because no one realized the game even could be rigged mm. except for these insiders who had I and mean, they'd figured out how to manipulate the system. Mm. And it, they were doing it in a way that was it became so commonplace and so entrenched that people disregarded it as business as usual. And yeah. and that <laughs> that to me is one of the kind of as as a journalist who's been covering finance for a long time now, that has been that's really one of the key red flags I see that guarantees me that I'm onto a good story is when people in the industry start saying, no, 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 you don't understand. This is just the way business works. This is, this is the way things have <laughs> always worked. Usual. It's business as usual. And that to me is just a, just a bright red flag saying and of course something is wrong. And they're all making stupid money, millions of dollars. I guess everyone be subject to temptation, you know, what you, what you can get away with and, uh, and not get caught. But, uh, but, but it, it's um, now currently administered by the Intercontinental Exchange, right? Yeah. yeah so it was at the time that this scandal took place, it was run by right. the British Bankers Association, which is essentially a lobbying group mm-hmm. yeah, based in London. Yeah, there's uh, some change coming. But anyway, uh, Andrew Lowe, professor at MIT, says this dwarf saw it by orders of magnitude any financial scams in history marks. We'll be back with David Enrich from the Wall Street Journal and New York Times right after this. All right, we're back with David Enrich. He's the finance enterprise editor. Oh, excuse me, he's the New York Times uh, finance editor. Uh, when he wrote this book, The Spider Network, he was with the Wall Street Journal. You really got to get this book, folks, if you want to get an understanding about the LIBOR scandal and the magnitude. It is the biggest scandal in the history of the, the ripoff in the history of the world, I would say. Wouldn't I mean, I'm not underestimating, right? You're not underestimating. I mean, they're... For better or for worse, there's a very large, diverse menu of scandals to choose from these <laughs> days. So this is this is definitely a big one, though. Yeah. Now let's attach some numbers to it. We I've seen uh, 350 trillion dollars in LIBOR loans out there. Uh, I've seen the number go as high as 600 trillion. And then then notion, in notional value and derivatives attached to that. What would that number? Go? I mean, these are all kind of. This reminds me of when I was a student. Uh, I took a physics class, uh, and someone asked the question of the professor. How hot is the sun? And it, the the professor's response was, you know, it just doesn't matter. It's really freaking it's very hot. hot. <laughs> and it, it's kind of like that. These numbers, once you get into the trillions of dollars, I, it's almost meaningless. So, yeah, there are the numbers floating around of $350 trillion. I think that's probably an exaggeration, honestly. But, again, it's it's such a big number that it – it's but, huge. And of, course, and, and, of course, derivatives, nobody wants to talk about that because that's a, probably a black hole that, uh, that we can't get out of. I mean, yeah, this around. is something that was deeply entwined in the financial crisis a decade ago, and the problem still exists, which is that there are trillions and trillions of these con- – or trillions and trillions of dollars worth of these contracts all over the world. There's no central party that is in charge of them. And so it's just you know one bank and another bank enter into a contract, often using actual physical pieces of paper – and a fax machine. Well, that's what amazed me about this. This really is a global scam. I mean, you have offices in Singapore, London, all over the world. And when you call the Spider Network, how'd you come up with that title and why? 
And the the reason I came up with that is the one of the guys who was involved in this scam. So Tom Hayes is the central character in this book, and one of his colleagues, uh, after the fact, when I got to know him a little bit, referred to the network of people as a spider network. And he, he did that in a way that he was trying to, as bankers were wont to do at the time, really kind of trying to isolate the problem as not being his problem. It was this one, mm. ind- trying to frame it as this one guy, Tom mm. Hayes, who had constructed this elaborate spider network. Yeah. And I just thought that was telling because it, at the, it's right, it's true, there is a spider network. It's a huge number of participants with a bunch of people involved. At the same time, though, the who is the spider in this book and who is the fly and who ends up getting caught in the web and it's not necessarily who you'd expect. But, but weren't a lot of these people trading against one another? Yeah, there's a, that's definitely true. And one of the features of the financial system in the 21st century is that it basically became a closed loop of sophisticated financial institutions trading with each other. And pity the poor, normal investor, whether it's a mm-hmm. pension fund or university endowment or God help us, uh, an individual investor who steps into this web. Mm. And they are, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the book is it's toward the beginning. And there's a scene on one of these trading floors where they're waiting around for transactions to come in over the phone and a pension fund calls. And people start competing with each other on the trading floor for this client to be able to do business (laughs) with them, not because it's a lucrative client, but because this is dumb money. It's a muppet. It's someone who can easily be ripped off. Here comes a mark. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's that's that is a hallmark of the financial system these days. Wow. Unbelievable. So if you're a class action attorney and wanted to and let's say you're representing everyone who got ripped off in this, let's say as as a borrower, let's just do the borrowers and and leave the banks alone for um, what kind of number, how would you even begin to calculate damages? This, I think, started in the early 90s. It even went on through after the financial collapse of 08. This kept going on all until Yeah, well, this is one of the, the complexities and kind of subtleties of this, this scandal is that the reality is that it's, hard, it's very hard to tell how borrowers were actually affected by this because the, the scam was not that they were trying to increase LIBOR by huge margins or decrease it by huge margins. One day they would increase it by a little bit and the next day, maybe they would decrease it by a similar amount. And so if you're a borrower, it's really hard to tell how much you were hurt. And that, that was one of the kind of ingenious parts of the scam is that it was done in such small increments that no one would notice. And to me, the real clear, indisputable victim of this is not – it's something that's a little amorphous. And I think that's unsatisfying for the class action lawyers and for some other people. But it's really the integrity of the financial system. Yeah. And that's a system that's predicated on trust. Well, let's just say from one month to the next, everybody's loan goes in LIBOR, tied to LIBOR, goes up a dollar. What would, what amount would? That I mean, be? it would, it could potentially, it would definitely be billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> but again, it's it's really hard to tell if that's actually the case. I mean, right. the the real winners here are the bank traders, but the real losers are it's anyone who interacts with the financial system at any time, and that is just about everyone. But but yeah. didn't um, adjustable rate mortgages reset on the first? It, wasn't there like a consistent pattern of those resetting on a day that yeah, so, increase? Well, the, it depends whom you ask. And okay. the class action lawyers say, yes, there is a clear pattern of that. Okay. I've spent a lot of time talking to the lawyers and actually going through these documents myself. Mm-hmm. And one of the, to me, the revelations of this book is that and kind of the first half of the book is outlining this great scam and how the, these uh, nefarious amoral bankers really took advantage of the system. But the second half of the book is how everyone else then entered the void 
and tried to make money for themselves. And that's the class action lawyers, it's the regulators, it's the prosecutors, and all of these guys use LIBOR as a kind of a springboard to launch their own careers. And the reality is this became, LIBOR became in a lot of ways synonymous with efforts to crack down on bad banker behavior after the crisis. But the reality is very few people who are actually responsible for the crisis have been punished. Instead, it's one guy who was involved with LIBOR, who is, you know... I think they made him the fall guy. He was kind of a, he was kind of a uh, eccentric character, Asperger's Syndrome, Tom Hayes, which we'll get into him in a little bit. But essentially, 18 financial institutions and 35 individuals at minimum uh, in, in spanning 11 countries were involved in this. Only $7 billion in penalties, and, and maybe it's been more. That This was as of, I think, 2015, so has there been more? Yeah, it's been about $10 billion in penalties. But again, which sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but if you're a big bank you're making 4 or 5 billion dollars every quarter in profits and so the 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 notion of really punishing a bank by uh imposing a one time penalty on them is it's a joke that's not something that changes anyone's behavior well, so how, how many different companies did tom hayes work for during the course of his involvement? he worked for five different banks okay yeah. So I saw one figure that they they got away with at least a trillion and a half dollars and and I mean these I'm I'm reluctant to yeah. You know, assent to these numbers because I right. think everyone is pulling this stuff out of thin air. To be honest right. with you, there's the, nobody knows how much money this costs everyone, and that's precisely the point of the scandal: is that this is something that was so hard to track and is embedded in everything, and yet it's impossible because it's embedded in everything. The answer is almost infinity. Yeah. Right? There's just no way to come up with an accurate number. Is it a trillion? Is Boy. it thirty trillion? Is it a hundred trillion? I don't know. It's a big, well, big number. From a masterminded criminal enterprise uh, standpoint, it's it's genius, really, because they can't really pin yep. it, pin it's it the down. Perfect crime. Yeah, it really is. But uh, you've got some ideas about solutions and everything else. Um, how did you ever come? How did you ever uh, discover Tom Hayes in the first place? Uh, so I was in the Wall Street Journal's London bureau and. Uh, when this when the LIBOR scandal erupted, I was my editor at the time actually encouraged me to write a profile of this guy who was one of the few bankers who had actually been charged with a crime anywhere after the financial crisis. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. It's impossible. I threw a small tantrum and my editor forced me to do it. And I you know, grudgingly obeyed. So this was after Tom was charged. So it? this was right. It was like a week or two after he'd been charged in the okay. U.S. and arrested. Which would be what year? This is end of 2012. Oh, okay. And, and, uh, and, and it, uh, so I kind of started circling around him, got to know one of his uh, business school classmates who actually lives out here in Southern California. Yeah. And uh, she agreed to give me or to give Tom my phone number. And one night I uh, was sitting at home and got a text message from a number, a phone number I didn't recognize that said, you know, I'm, ha- I'm willing to meet you, but I need to make sure I can trust you. This goes much, much higher than me. Not even the Justice Department. It sounds knows like the all story. the president's men all over. The- he agreed. <laughs> and this is Tom Hayes. And he said, I'll meet you the next morning at this busy train station in London. I'll be wearing a brown leather jacket standing outside the Burger King. Right out and, of a movie, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought I was uh, really stepping into all the president's men. So. <laughs> Unbelievable. Of course, this guy was very eccentric. Uh, high, he had Asperger's. Uh, he had trouble interacting, social, social yep. skills and or lack social skills, and I think they kind of made him the outcast. And, and I think soon as he, soon as he realized he was going to be the fall guy for this, he probably sought you out and go, well, I'm going to, that's what made your book, right? I mean, he gave you a lot of information in addition to all the... Yeah, I spent, I mean, I spent the better part of three years basically embedded with him and his family, and uh, it was fascinating. Wow. We'll be back with David Enrich all about the Spider Network and the big LIBOR ripoff right after this. Hang on. 
All right, we're back with the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life, and this is the time where Richard likes to thank our sponsors. Big thank you to all of our sponsors. Couldn't do this show without them. At the top of the list, that would be UBS, not the investment bank. That would be UBS Wealth Management, Michael Caranta. Just saw Mike last week at the Lombardi Group's big ATPI, Advanced Tax Planning Institute up in La Costa. That's another sponsor, the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs. The CPA's very best clients. We love CPAs on this show so much that we actually have two sets that sponsor us. Jason Kruger's great CFO service company, Signature Analytics, and then more traditional CPAs, Polito Epic CPAs with Don Epic and Paul Polito. Also, our great friend Joel Grushkin with Cost Segregation Initiatives, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. Now, all this money our sponsors make for you, how about you stash it at Mechanics Bank? Mechanics Bank wasn't involved in LIBOR, not at all. They are a specialized niche market bank. It works with wealthy families, families in the real estate business, and family offices. Talk about uncertainty. How about employee benefits? Is healthcare staying around or not? Who knows? Hub International might be able to predict a great employee benefits firm, Neil Staley, with Hub International. Also, Paul Hines. Paul, of course, is the CEO of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management and the catalyst behind SeniorSafeAndSound.org here in San Diego, helping to prevent the financial abuse of the elderly. Also, Geiger Law Office, Brenda Geiger, and a great team of attorneys specializing in asset protection and estate planning. And, of course, Michelle St. Clair with Elite Lifestyle Management, helping people like me and Joe get into movie premieres in Hollywood, as well as other things that you might need done where you just don't have time, from the simple to the complex. A great concierge service, Elite Lifestyle Management. And for those of you who are kind enough to skip dinner to listen to our show because you love it so much. We can help with your hunger pangs too, right, Joe? Right. There's the Very Good Food Foundation headed up by Michelle Ciccarelli-Lirac, putting on great foodie programs throughout the year and great broadcasting. And also the Stats Coffee Houses, the one in Normal Heights, University Heights, and now the new one on University Avenue, all open 24-7, 365 with great food and great people watching. And, of course, um, Richard's been working with many of these sponsors for many, many years with great success, right, Richard? Yeah, going on three decades yeah. in some cases. I don't so, want to admit it, but it's true. Yeah, so if you get over to iymoney.com, there's a sponsor tab there. You can drop down menu. You can learn about any or all of our sponsors, and there you go. And there's a media kit as well that Courtney has put together that you'll uh, be interested in. That's Courtney with PopX Graphics. That's Yes, sir. Let's get back to David Enrich. D- David, question. Do, do you think Tom Hayes was an evil person, or do you think he was just somebody who was very bright who figured out a way to profit within a certain system that was sort of business as usual? Definitely the latter. I mean, he's, I I don't think very many people in the banking system or in the financial industry are actually evil. I think these are people, the ones who commit wrongdoing, commit crimes, are people who generally, there are some cheaters, but there are some, a lot more people who are, have been programmed essentially and trained and brought up in a culture that encourages people to push the envelope and go as far as they can and look for little inefficiencies and loopholes to exploit, and some of them just push a little too far. And, mm-hmm. and what was the culture in the banking industry, and did regulation or deregulation have anything to do with the culture? Uh, the culture was rotten, and yes. Okay. The, <laughs> the, I mean, the slightly more elaborate answer is that in both the U.S. and Britain at the time that this scandal started, there was a very aggressive experiment with deregulation. Mm-hmm. And basically, especially in England, in uh, the the regulators just decided to stop. In the Thatcher era, right? Yeah, it was, well, it was first the Thatcher era, but, which is a conservative government, but then it was the labor government as well. And it mm-hmm. was very similar, parallel to a lot of what was happening here uh, in the Clinton administration, which mm-hmm. was that there, these, you know, the party that is that traditionally had been associated with being a strict supervision of finance just completely 
let people go hog wild with the the notion that banks would essentially look after themselves, that they had an incentive to uh, not do bad things. And, and that just, you know, we all know how that story Well, in the good old days, banks, you know, you just put your money in there and they'd sit on it for you and make, you know, make And they'd actually pay you loans, interest. And, you know, pay you interest. <laughs> and, uh, of course, when banks became publicly traded, I think that's when uh, the culture changed because now they are they're profit-driven, so now they have to have trading floors and broker right, and traders. and Yeah, well, it's not just the profit yeah. mode. I mean, because they'd been trying to make money all along. But I, mean, I think they're, when they went public, they became much more short-term oriented. Mm. So they had shareholders pressuring them to, uh, you know, not only make money quarter after quarter, but to increase the profits quarter after quarter. And that's something that it just isn't healthy, Mm. especially for a financial institution who's, you know, the the idea of the finance industry is not to be this huge profit-maximizing enterprise. It's to be lubricating the system and efficiently deploying capital between people who have excess money, so depositors, and people who have uh, need money, which is borrowers. And, that's not something that, you know, intrinsically should be one of the most lucrative industries in the world. That should, to the extent, the more lucrative that is, that's just money. The profits the banks make are, is just money that's being sucked out of the real economy. Yeah. And, and given um, our present administration's viewpoint on regulation or deregulation, do you think this country, the USA, is sitting in a position where we could have a similar scandal? I don't necessarily mean LIBOR-related I, but, but I mean, something else. I, yeah, I think that, and I don't really think it's the administration's fault, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think that there's, uh, I think the markets have been going up for a very long time right now, and there's a lot of money sloshing around, partly because of what central banks have been doing, partly because the markets have been going up, mm-hmm. partly because the current administration is taking a very kind of deregulatory, laissez-faire approach to things. But I think, my guess is there's a similar scandal going on right now, and we just don't know about it yet. Yeah. Right? Well, look, the interest rates are being kept very low. Like you said, in Japan, it was flat for a long time yep. at one point. Uh, so there's really no place else to, to if you're a, a large investor. And, and I think, I don't know what percentage uh, in the markets um, are, are uh, large sovereign funds or major. But I'm assuming it's at least 50% or more where they're large investors, institutional investors, would you say? Yeah, I'm really not sure. I mean, all, what I know is that they're with interest rates at these rock-bottom levels for so long, it's forcing a lot of investors to do really aggressive things they probably wouldn't otherwise do mm-hmm. in order to make some money because you know there's there's they need yield to satisfy their clients and so they go piling into riskier and riskier stuff mm-hmm. and that's a really good strategy until the music stops at which point it you know Everyone looks back and says, "I can't believe they were taking so much risk. How could they not have seen this coming?" There'll be an Enron, an Enron event or something. Well, right? there will be something, right? There's <laughs> going to be when, as Warren Buffett likes to say, when the tide goes out, you see who's naked. And <laughs> there's, we're going eventually. Markets will go down. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a kind of slow, steady decline, or maybe it'll be a sharp plunge off a cliff. But there, there's, and these things are cyclical, sure. and we've been on the upswing for a very long time now. Sure, sure, sure. So did Tom Hayes get 14 years in jail? Yeah, he was originally sentenced to 14 years in prison. That was later reduced to 11. But he's so he's one of the only bankers currently in jail for Mm -hmm. crimes committed during the financial crisis. And he's he's in a maximum security prison. His uh, best friend there is a guy, a former financial advisor who was convicted of murdering his client. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, it's a pretty stark scene for him because he is uh, as we mentioned earlier he's mildly autistic this is not your traditional wheeler dealer out of central casting this is a guy who is much happier you know with a bucket of kfc 
and an orange soda mm-hmm. than going to a Michelin-starred restaurant. Or mm-hmm. it didn't really go out to clubs, didn't really drink. Um, just a very socially awkward, kind of nerdy, uh, withdrawn individual who were, it's, not, it's not the guy you would expect to see did, did, at the center. You were in his home, though. Was it a pretty nice home? I mean, he made a lot of money. Uh, you know, I, by the time I got to know him, his, he did have a very nice home. He was, he was making at his peak about 5 or $6 million a year, which mm-hmm. is obviously an extraordinary amount of money. In banker terms, it's actually not that much, especially given how much he was earning for uh, for his employers. But yeah, I mean, by any, I wish I was making five or six million dollars. <laughs> and so yeah, he was living well. Um, he was living very well. He's lost it all at this point. And mm. my view is that and Hayes is definitely guilty and definitely deserves to have been punished. But he was doing something that his bosses knew about, that his coworkers were all involved with. His bosses, in some cases, not only knew about what he was doing, but condoned it. And in some cases, participated alongside him. Mm. And yet Hayes is the one guy who's in prison for this. And a lot of the people he worked with, including some of his bosses and his boss's bosses, remain employed in the finance industry, in some cases in pretty senior capacities. Uh, Isn't that something? And it's, I mean, this is, I, I understand why people are so angry. And I think that's part of the reason that Bernie Sanders had such appeal last year and why mm-hmm. Trump is in the White House, honestly. Yeah. Did, did Tom Hayes trust people too much? or, or... Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he, one of the classics, I didn't know much about autism or Asperger's before getting to know Hayes, but and one of the kind of hallmarks of these guys is that they are, while they're ridiculously smart in some senses, they really lack a lot of social intelligence. So yeah. no EQ or low yeah. EQ. Yeah, very low yeah. EQ. But he was a math genius of sorts. Anyway, we're going to come back with David Enrich with the New York Times as a finance editor right after this. Hang on. We're back with uh, David Enrich with the New York Times, the finance editor, getting smart, talking about the LIBOR scandal and his new book, The Spider Network. Um, have the banks uh, and the finance industry captured the regulatory industries? Isn't there like a revolving door we keep talking about? And is that part of the problem, too? Yes, it's part of the problem. And I think the uh, one of the big problems here is that re- the people who are regulating the banks often want to ultimately convert those jobs into positions in the industry. And so there's, um, I think there's a real desire. It's not so much to just go soft on the banks, but it's to do things in a way that will make them palatable and attractive for future employers in the private sector. Mm. And I think that's, part of that honestly is that it prompts prosecutors to just go to rack up victories. And so you have some prosecutors like Pri Barrara, who's the former uh, U.S. attorney, in Manhattan, who he would boast that he was basically undefeated as a prosecutor. He was 98-0. And uh, to me, that was always a really alarming uh, data point that he would cite because that's a sign that he's not taking any risk. You should be losing cases. And I think one of the things I've learned writing the Spider Network was that part of the problem here is that prosecutors want to go for low-hanging fruit. They want to go for the easy wins for the people who were just kind of, you know, uh, t- cases that were easily tied down and didn't require the prosecutors to take much risk by trying to build cases against people who were higher up the food chains. Yeah. And that, and the lack of creativity and ambition and uh, risk-taking by some of these prosecutors, I think, is a big part of the reason that more people haven't gone to jail uh, for crimes committed during the financial crisis. And it's part of the reason why people still have such distrust for the financial system and, and for the people who are policing it. And do you have any opinion, like on, for example, Jamie Dimon and that whole scandal? I mean, I don't even know which scandal you're referring to. There's so many uh, scandals, but there's, I mean, you know, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, Morgan, has, uh, frankly, his institution has been largely 
unscathed by most of these scandals. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the London Whale that cost his shareholders a bunch of money. I and mean, I, I think the big interesting question for Jamie Dimon is whether he is now uh, eyeing a run for the White House himself. Because oh I think a lot of these bankers and uh, people in the finance industry look at Donald Trump and say, hey, I'm a lot smarter than that guy. I'm much more mm-hmm. successful than that guy. If he can do it, so can I. <laughs> Yeah, he's definitely removed uh, the, you know, you used to say if you got skeletons in your closet, you can't be <laughs> run for office. Well, he's blown he's blown that theory apart because uh, the skeletons aren't even in the closet, <laughs> Joe. They're out in public. Hey, credit the, interest rate swaps and credit default swaps. Were those the same thing? And could you explain what a swap is? Yeah, no, they're not the same thing. These are both uh, basically types of derivatives that originally were designed to help people protect themselves against risks. So interest rate swaps were something that you would use if you're a small business owner and you have you've borrowed a lot of money, you want to protect yourself from the possibility that interest rates go up in the future. You would basically buy one of these swaps whose value would go up if interest rates went down, for instance. So or maybe it would be the reverse. Basically it, it's it's a hedging device. So if you're okay. a big the example I, I like to give as I'm from Boston and a big Red Sox fan. And mm-hmm. if you're if the Red Sox and Yankees are playing each other in the playoffs I might try and hedge my bets by betting that the Yankees would win. And that way, if the Yankees win and I'm heartbroken that the Red Sox lost, at least I make some money in the transaction. (laughs) And uh, interest rate swaps are another way of doing that. Credit default swaps are a bit different, but the same basic principle, which is you're essentially insuring yourself again. If If you've bought debt that a big company issues, you're insuring yourself against the possibility that that company defaults on the debt. So these are all, all of these instruments were designed as kind of risk management tools that companies and businesses could use to protect themselves. And they all metastasized into something that became this just playground for the gamblers in these banks. And of course, who was the doctor? I guess he, he went to uh, Goldman. He said, make me a market. Uh, was, there was a movie about it, um, you know, that, that, uh, that the banks were going to – he bet against the banks, and they thought he oh, was crazy. Oh, right, yeah. So there's – I mean the, – the, Can you about 800, 800, 800 million or some crazy number on, the, on that? There, I mean, there, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure how much you made, but there's uh, – you know, these, these instruments that have, were traditionally very well-intended, very, you know, very well-designed, honestly, to help companies manage risk have become this – they became much bigger – as a way for banks to gamble and to kind of place bets on things that they really had no way of predicting. And yeah. LIBOR, of course, became something that they were also betting on, and they did have a way to predict because they could actually manipulate and manipulate it in a way that they had some sway over the outcome. So there were just about 12 individuals in a room that would set that rate, basically? Or? Well, they weren't even in a room together. I mean, it was like low-level employees at the big banks this is a thankless job. No one really wanted the LIBOR-setting job. So it would be <laughs> someone straight out of business school uh, – who would have this task of, you know, one of a million things they were supposed to do that day, where they would just punch into a database. And, but who was ultimately responsible for coming up with the number? Well, these individuals would punch in a number saying, I, the you know, low-level guy, Bank of America, let's say, mm-hmm. estimate that our borrowing costs today are X. And he would stick that into a spreadsheet, hit a button, and that would go to the British Bankers Association, which would take all of these estimates from a dozen or 20 banks. And drop the highs and, and low, yeah. Right, drop the, the highs and lows and take the average and presto, you've got LIBOR. But and, the, and would a trader, for example, try to contact that person and say, right, and hey, that, I, need a, I need a basis point or two this way or that way? Yeah, that's exactly what would okay. happen. So that, and that's how the scandal erupted, is that the p- traders of these banks, who are kind of the big swing dicks of the industry, they're the mm-hmm. guys who are making lots of money, they have a lot of swagger, 
they would go to these clerks in the bank and say, hey, I need you to do, I need you to move it up a little bit or mm-hmm. move it down a little bit. And these low-level guys who are straight out of business school are probably a little intimidated. And, you know, they're part of an institution whose goal is to make money. So why not do a favor for the traders? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I saw the film Inside Job. It won the Oscar for Best Documentary. I don't know if you've been approached yet to, to make a documentary, but, boy, there's certainly uh, enough material here for a, a, a whopper, I think, you know, a blockbuster. Don't you think, Richard? Yeah, it would be. Uh, <laughs> I think you should start with the documentary. Yeah, and yeah. Tom Hayes, uh, obviously, he's not, you know, you can probably get to him and, if, and, and get him on film or whatever. Um, you spent three years with this gentleman? Yeah, give or take, and his wife as well. So I... Uh, Good luck getting a camera crew into a maximum security. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, easier said than done. Well, maybe Oliver Stone or Alex Gibney or somebody would would be involved. And of course, this could be a feature film too. I mean, you've got uh, the colorful. Th- the nice thing in your book, it, it's 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 like a Shakespearean play. Or it whatever. moves fast. I like the fact that it moves. Yeah, fast. I mean, in the beginning, you've got the whole all the cast of characters, the family. I mean, it looks like a, a you know a mafia a cast of characters here or something, right? Well, My, it is. It's the you know these guys are prosecuted under a lot of the same uh, laws that prosecutors use to go after organized crime. Would you say because uh, Tom, when he got charged, he said, "Well, I'm if I'm going to be the fall guy, I'm going to spill my guts," and and essentially he he's without him, this would not have. Uh, well, certainly the book wouldn't have happened without Tom. I mean, I think... Uh, is I'm, he bitter about this? I mean, is he... Yeah, pit- he's, I mean, he's, like, beyond bitter. Yeah, him he's, spilling his guts didn't lead to any other... No, right, but he's, I mean... He's, he's in prison losing his mind, to be honest yeah. with you. And I, I honestly don't think, though, he viewed talking to me as a way to change the outcome. I think he, in his kind of mildly autistic way... It was cathartic. Really, cathartic. Yeah, it was cathartic. He wanted someone to talk to, someone who would listen and wouldn't judge him. And he was, you know... He was getting destroyed in the media, destroyed yeah. by politicians, and just the notion of having someone he could talk to, kind of like a therapist, honestly. And he really was a math genius. Uh, when, you know, yeah, he was a mathematician. He I mean, and he is one of the smartest people I've ever, probably the smartest person I've ever interacted with, and and very smart in a numerical sense, a very very well read, honestly. But you know, if you asked him how are you feeling, that's a question that he would be literally incapable of answering. Really. Huh, how about that? Wasn't he in a cab and, and he asked about uh, Lyft or something? He did an instantaneous calculation yeah. about all the... <laughs> yeah, it was an Uber. I, I was in an Uber with him. And he uh, he started getting in a fascinating conversation with the driver. And the driver had a, a son who was very gifted with computers and math. And Tom started telling the driver, kind of picking apart how the Uber algorithm worked and it, giving uh, very interesting advice to this the drivers on behalf of his son about... Mm-hmm. Do not go into finance. <laughs> Get a computer programming degree and go invent something. Do something productive with your life. And Don't did, become a banker. And he did like a big calculation about all the, the Uber, yeah, the Uber he, cars in the city and the profit margin right, and everything, right? Yeah, and it, it, he would do things like that all the time. He was very – he was able to do really complex equations and just – he saw things in this in this very mathematical way, which, you know, to me, I can like hardly do like multiplication or long division. And it was very – it was it was kind of magical. Yeah, well, I, I like the part in the, uh, the book about where he made a decision about what stakes to buy based on the unit price. Yeah. Anyway, folks, what you have to buy is the Spider Network, about, all about the LIBOR scandal by David Enrich, who is the New York Times finance editor, all the way here from New York. We really appreciate you being with us, David. Richard Riso, great seeing you. Justin Harder, board operator, thanks for making it sound terrific. Hey, everybody, have a good Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Move your feet before you eat. Absolutely. Up in Oceanside. Absolutely. And uh, thanks to Craig Blanke and uh, Dave Sniff here at KFMB for all their help and all these podcasts are commercial-free on iymoney.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.